Let me ask you to turn with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, We're nearing the end of our series of messages on these Lord's Supper Sundays, uh, in which we're trying to to understand why we believe what we believe about the Lord's Supper, uh, why we practice the Lord's Supper the way we do, and um, even more importantly, we're trying to help us see why this is such a big deal, why it's a, a wonderful thing, why the Lord's Supper is something you should look forward to and value, and how Christ uses it to, um, to grow us up in our faith. This morning I want to begin with some words from uh, J.C. Ryle, and I hope these words will remind us of just how seriously some have viewed the Lord's Supper in the past. He says this, Why was John Rogers, the proto-martyr, vicar of St. Sepulchre's and prebendary of St. Paul's, why was he burned in Smithfield on February 4th, 1555? Well, let us hear his own account from Fox's Book of Martyrs. I was asked whether I believed the sacrament to be the very body and blood of our Savior Christ that was born of the Virgin Mary and hanged on the cross, really and substantially. I answered, I think it to be false. I cannot understand those words really and substantially to mean anything other than bodily. But bodily, Christ is only in heaven. And so Christ cannot be bodily in your sacrament. And so he was burned. Why was Hugh Latimer, sometime Bishop of Worcester, Burned at Oxford on October 16th, 1555. Let us hear what Fox says were the articles exhibited against him. That thou hast openly affirmed, defended, and maintained that the true and natural body of Christ, after the consecration of the priest, is not really present in the sacrament of the altar. And that in the sacrament of the altar there remains still the substance of bread and wine. And to this article the good old man replied, After a corporal being which the Roman church furnisheth, Christ's body and blood is not in the sacrament under the forms of bread and wine. And for that he was burned. Why was Nicholas Ridley, Bishop of London, burned at Oxford? October 16th, 1555. Once more, let us hear what Fox says were the words of the sentence of his condemnation. The said Nicholas Ridley affirms, maintains, and stubbornly defends certain opinions, assertions, and heresies contrary to the word of God and the received faith of the church, as in denying the true and natural body and blood of Christ to be in the sacrament of the altar, and secondarily in affirming the substance of bread and wine to remain after the words of consecration. And so he was burned. Why was John Bradford, prebendary of St. Paul's, chaplain to Bishop Ridley, one of Edward VI chaplains, why was he burned at Smithfield July 1st, 1555? Let us hear what Fox says he wrote to the men of Lancashire and Cheshire while he was in prison. He wrote, The chief thing which I am condemned for as a heretic is because I deny the sacrament of the altar, which is not Christ's supper, but a plain perversion as the papists now use it, 
to be a real, natural, and corporal presence of Christ's body and blood under the forms and accidents of bread and wine. That is, because I deny transubstantiation, which is the darling of the devil and the daughter and heir to Antichrist's religion. And so this man was burned. Uh, Mount Hermon, a month ago, um, on our last Lord's Supper service, we went to great pains to prove that these men were right in what they believed. The Bible does not teach that the bread and the wine in the Lord's Supper magically becomes the body and blood of Christ in communion. But when I read stories like that, I wonder if we care so much about the truth of God's Word and the purity of His worship that we would be willing to die like these men rather than to renounce our beliefs. Are we a people of that kind of conviction? Do we take the worship of God and do we take the Lord's Supper in particular to be so precious, so valuable, so wonderful a gift that we would rather die than see the Lord's Supper twisted and turned into something it is not? What have we seen so far in our study of the Lord's Supper? First, we have seen what the Lord's Supper is in general. It is just that. It is a supper. It is a supper that Christians enjoy together in a way that imitates the Last Supper that Christ had with His disciples on the night when He was betrayed. It is a fellowship meal in which Christians are to enjoy one another's company. But at the center of this fellowship meal is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who has brought us all together. Jesus is the one who has made us in this room one body. And as we enjoy fellowship together, we remember how Christ brought us together. We remember what Christ has done for us in our salvation by partaking together of the consecrated bread and the consecrated cup. These are a symbol, a reminder of how He died for our souls. Second, we saw that it is possible to distort the Lord's Supper so badly that it no longer becomes the Lord's Supper. Uh, The Lord's Supper is meant to be a joint celebration of how God has saved us and brought us together as a family. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, if you come to the Lord's Supper with divisions among you, if you come to the Lord's Supper with some members treating other members with hostility or unforgiveness or bitterness, you're denying the very thing the Supper celebrates. If we are failing to care for one another, in short, if we are not loving one another, then taking the Lord's Supper together is not really the Lord's Supper. When Christ has saved a people, when Christ has made them new, here is the first result. Here is the fruit that shows that they've been saved. They love one another. And so we are always to enjoy the Lord's Supper in a context of real love and mutual care for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Third, we saw that the Lord's Supper is His Supper. It is the Lord's Supper. He is the host. 
He created this thing. He instituted it. He is the one who has provided his body and his blood for our souls. When we come together to this table, it is the table of Christ. And the fellowship that we have together is a fellowship that Christ has provided for us. We are to remember we once had fellowship with God. And that fellowship that we had with God was lost by Adam and Eve in the garden. But now Jesus has brought us back into fellowship with God. And we eat at God's table. We eat in God's house. The Lord's Supper is an expression of how God has welcomed us. It's God showing hospitality to us. It is an expression of God's care for us. It meant something in the ancient world to dine with someone. And Jesus, as God Himself, invites us to His table and says, Dine with me. Of course, more than that, it points us to the day when we will enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb with Jesus Himself in the new heavens and the new earth. The fellowship with Jesus that we have here, the fellowship with one another that we know around this table is meant to be a picture and a foretaste of the great fellowship we will know when Christ returns. Fourth, we've already seen in this study that we are to observe the Lord's Supper in remembrance of Christ. That means we are to actively, intentionally remember Christ, especially as we take the bread and the cup. As you receive the bread from the hands of the deacons, as you receive the cup from the hands of the deacons, you are to be bringing gospel truths to your mind. You are to be affecting your heart with those gospel truths. And in light of those truths, you should be resolving in your will to live worthy of the King who has made you His own and who has bought you at the price of His own blood. Fifthly, we saw last time that the bread and the cup are symbols of the body and blood of Christ intended to proclaim the gospel to us in a visible way. In the sermon, you hear the gospel with the sense of hearing. But in the Lord's Supper, you see the gospel with sight. We saw last time that to claim that the bread and the wine actually become the body and blood of Christ is to deny the true humanity of Christ. It is to twist the meaning of His own words. It is to ignore the teaching of Christ in John 6. Worst of all, the the Roman Catholic view of the Lord's Supper where it is turned into this magical uh, bread transforms into body, wine transforms into blood. It is to re-sacrifice the Lord Jesus Christ over and over again. Even though the book of Hebrews says that Christ's death on the cross was a once for all time sacrifice. And so this is where we are. And this morning we are going to begin rounding out, bringing to an end our study of the Lord's Supper by asking now practical questions. Questions that people often have about the Lord's Supper and why we practice it the way we do. Um, There is a real sense in which this sermon this morning kind of presupposes that you've heard the others. And so if you've missed one of these messages, go online. You You can find what we've done there. The questions I am answering this morning all relate to sermons we've preached before. But I hope that answering these questions will help us 
to have a better understanding of the Lord's Supper. So let's read again 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 23. 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 23. For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. All right, so as I said, we want to use the Scriptures to answer five questions this morning. Here is question number one. We'll have to move quickly, so just um, stay with me. Question number one. Does it matter who presides over the Lord's Supper? In other words, does it matter who is standing at the table? Does it matter who blesses the bread, who, who blesses the cup in the Lord's Supper? And perhaps if you come from a Roman Catholic background, you know that in Roman Catholic theology, it absolutely matters. Remember, in uh, the Catholic view of things, the bread and wine actually become physical body and blood of Jesus when? When the priest blesses them. When the priest prays over the bread and wine, that is when the, in Catholic view, the the magic takes place. But it only happens when an authorized priest blesses the elements. And thus, in Catholic theology, taking the Lord's Supper from anyone other than an authorized Catholic priest means you've never really experienced the Lord's Supper. This view raises other questions that people have had to wrestle with. What if your priest, who has been saying this blessing over your Mass, what if he turns out to be an ungodly man? What if the Catholic priest, who has been leading you in Mass for your life, turns out to be a fornicator, or worse, a child molester? What if it later comes out that the Catholic priest who was uh, providing you with the Mass, what if it turns out he was an atheist the whole time and he never really even believed in God? Does that mean his blessing over the bread and wine didn't work? Does it mean that the miracle didn't happen? And that when you thought you were receiving grace, you actually were just receiving bread and wine? These are the kinds of questions that Catholics have to wrestle with. But friends, the Bible nowhere suggests, nowhere suggests that the ability of the Lord's Supper to build up our faith and to strengthen our souls has anything to do with the holiness or the godliness of the people who serve it to us. The Bible is clear that Jesus alone is our great high priest. The days of the priesthood are over. You do not need a human mediator other than Christ in order to commune with God. 
And so the idea that you must receive the Lord's Supper from an authorized priest or even a godly authorized priest is not true. The truth is this. The power of the Lord's Supper is not in who serves it to you. The power of the Lord's Supper is in what it represents. When you, through the eyes of faith, receive the bread and the cup as a reminder of Christ's love for you and what He did for you, that strengthens your faith. It is God working the way He loves to work through His Word. And these symbols bring His Word to your mind in a powerful way. If you receive these things with faith, if you, if you take the bread and cup and, and remember through them, Christ died for me. And you let that truth warm your heart and have an effect on your soul. It changes you. If your Savior was willing to bear the wrath of God for you, what will He not bear for you? If your Savior was willing to die for you, can you doubt that He will do everything else necessary to care for you as a member of His bride, a member of His body? Can you have any doubt while you're taking the bread and taking the cup and remembering what Christ has done for you? Can you have any doubt? This one who loves me so much, He is going to bring me safely to heaven no matter what it takes. The Lord's Supper is a way of reminding you of the indestructible love of Jesus Christ and not just His love for you, but His love for us as a Christian family. And that's how the Lord's Supper works. It doesn't take a priest to make it have its effect. Now don't take that to mean that it doesn't matter at all who serves you the Lord's Supper. The Bible does present the Lord's Supper as an ordinance of the church. Um, it's a celebration of Christians gathered together, remembering their Lord together in the context of fellowship and worship. So you, you don't need to be taking the Lord's Supper alone. It's not typically something to be taken in your home or at a party or at a retreat. It, it is an ordinance of the church. But the effect of the Lord's Supper has nothing to do with who serves it to you. Question number two. Question number two. How should we, as Christians, view the practice of elevation? Elevation. This is something that both the Catholic Church does and the Eastern Orthodox Church does this. And what do I mean by elevation? In both the Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church, it is customary, after the bread and the wine have been blessed, to lift them up high over the priest's head. So if you ever watch maybe the, the Catholic uh, channel on cable TV or something, you'll see them do this. They'll raise the cup way up here, and, um, and, and, and they'll elevate it in that way, or they'll raise the bread way up here. And Eastern Orthodoxy, and when we talk about Eastern Orthodoxy, we're speaking of around 300 million people. In Eastern Orthodoxy, the priest raises up the element and says in Greek, Ta agia tois agios. That is, the holy things for the holy people. In Catholic churches, the priest holds the elements above his head and says in Latin, Ecce agnus dei, ecce quitolet peccata mundi. Don't correct me on my Latin, Caitlin. That is, 
Behold the Lamb of God. Behold Him who takes away the sins of the world. How should we view this practice? You may not have even ever thought about that practice of elevation. That was a really big deal to the Protestants of the past. Why? They saw it as akin to idolatry. In the ancient world, natural things and man-made things were said to be one with a God. So, for example, I could worship a God by worshiping this image, by worshiping this idol, by worshiping this this man-made, carved, created thing. Here in Catholicism, the bread and wine are said explicitly to actually be the Lamb of God. Right? So the priest says to the people, "This, this bread is Jesus. This juice is now, juice, this wine is now the, 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 the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he raises it above, their, his, above his head. What does that do to people? Well, if that's Jesus, shouldn't we worship? Right? Well, what's happening in elevation? These elements are being lifted high. The priest is saying, this is Jesus. And people would often, and they do, they kneel to receive Mass. Um, they don't point to Jesus and His divinity being everywhere, filling all things. No, they say, look at the bread I'm holding up. Look at this chalice that I'm holding up. This is Jesus. And people worship. Friends, that is idolatry. It is giving a reverence to a created thing. It is giving a reverence to bread, to wine that only belongs to Jesus Himself. And as a result, throughout history... There has been mass superstition that has arisen as people began treating the Lord's Supper as something completely different from what it is meant to be in the pages of the Bible. And so that's why we as Protestants do not practice elevation. We don't lift the elements over our heads and say words like that. Question three. Question three. Should we call the table, this table right here, Should we call this table that the elements are placed on the altar? The altar. Again, in Roman Catholicism, this is what the table is called, that the elements are set on. They call it an, an altar. And upon this altar, the body of Christ is broken. The bread. And upon this altar, the wine, the blood of Christ, is poured. And if you believe, as they do, that this is the actual body and blood of Christ, then you can see what they're doing here. They are re-sacrificing the Lord Jesus Christ upon an altar. Now, now by the way, I am not trying in any way to pick on Roman Catholics. Um, There are many areas of faith in which Protestants and Catholics agree When it comes to moral issues like fighting abortion, we can stand hand in hand with Roman Catholics. But I do want you to understand why we believe what we believe as Protestants. My goal here is not to pick on others. My goal is to help make sure that our roots are in our faith and and we understand why we hold the convictions that we hold. And so uh, I'm not picking on those who think differently. We're to love them. We're to have good, persuasive, wonderful conversations with them about these things. But you can't have those conversations if you don't know what you believe and why you believe it. If you were ever speaking with a a Roman Catholic about about the Lord's Supper, 
I hope you would take them to John 19.30 where Jesus says upon the cross, it is finished. There doesn't need to be any more sacrificing. I hope you would take them to Hebrews 10 and read these words. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. We sing it in our first hymn. Jesus, our great high priest, His blood did once atone. Once and for all time. And we should ask our Catholic friends, what what do they think those verses mean? Um, So, should we call the table an altar? No, we should not call the table an altar because the Bible clearly teaches that the sacrifice that saved our souls was already done 2,000 years ago and no more sacrificing needs to be done. The day of altars is gone. The day of altars is gone. We are to believe in the sacrifice that has already been made. Question four. Question four. This one is pretty common. What is the appropriate name for the Lord's Supper? What is the appropriate name for what we're doing here? Sometimes people speak of taking communion. Sometimes you may hear people refer to the Lord's Supper as the Eucharist. Um, We've seen that the Bible at times refers to the Lord's Supper with this term, love feast. The love feast. Catholics often refer to the Lord's Supper as Mass, and I keep calling it the Lord's Supper. So where do we get these names, and how should we think about these names, and what names should we, should we use? We'll begin with, with the word Mass. The word Mass, the word mass um, developed from the words that Catholic churches would use to dismiss their services in the Middle Ages. When it was time to dismiss the people at the end of the service, they would say, ite missa est. And it really, the word mass referred to the whole group of people, the mass of people gathered together for worship and to partake of the Lord's Supper. Today, if you speak of celebrating mass, most people are going to assume that you're meaning the Catholic Lord's Supper with the belief that the bread and wine actually become Jesus' body and Jesus' blood. And that as you take them, physical grace is infused into your soul, just like you would have a blood infusion, um, so you would have an infusion of grace as you take the body and blood. Protestants don't typically use the word mass because we don't want people to think that we're doing the same thing that our Catholic friends are doing. We don't want them to get the wrong idea. We don't agree that the bread and wine become body and blood. The other four names, I think, are all appropriate to use. Eucharist. Everybody say Eucharist. Okay. We don't use that one very often in our, in our Baptist circles. At least I, I haven't heard it very often, the word Eucharist. But the word Eucharist comes from the Greek word. It means giving thanks. And it's used right here in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 24. So look at verse 24 with me. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 24. Paul says, And when he had given thanks, that's our word, Eucharist. He broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so from that Greek word for giving thanks, Eucharisto, that's where we get the word Eucharist. And certainly giving thanks is to be an important part of the Lord's Supper. 
When we use the word Eucharist, what we're stressing is this is a time for thanksgiving. It is a time for us to remember what Christ has done for us, that we were bought by such a great price for Him and for heaven. We should rejoice. The Lord's Supper should be a time of gratitude. And so I think it's fine to refer to the Lord's Supper as the Eucharist. What about the term communion? The churches I grew up in, often we refer to it as communion. Where do we get that from? Turn back to 1 Corinthians 10 just the chapter before, and look at verse 16. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 16. In verse 16, again, referring to the Lord's Supper, Paul says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation, or in some translations, communion in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation, or again, could be translated communion in the blood, I'm sorry, in the body of Christ. And so that word in our ESV, it's participation. If you're using a King James Version, you see it as communion. When we take the Lord's Supper, we are expressing that we have participation, communion in Christ's body and blood. In other words, when we take communion, we are, when we use that name, we're professing that Christ's body and blood really was shed for me. I have fellowship in that. What, what Christ did at the cross, I, I am participating in that. It, it was done for, for me. I am united to Christ in such a way that His sacrifice on the cross was accepted by God as, as my sacrifice. And so it's that unity with Christ, that communion with Christ that's in view when we use the word communion. Now, it means more than that, of course, because not only do we have union with Christ, we have union with one another as brothers and sisters. And we have union with the Father, and we have union with the Spirit. And since the Lord's Supper is a celebration of our joint fellowship in Christ, communion is a suitable and a good name for what we're doing here, communion. Now, by the way, just as a curiosity, did you notice that here in verse 16, 1 Corinthians 10, Paul mentions the cup first and the bread second? That's different, right? At the Last Supper, if you read the Gospels in the, in the Last Supper, we're told that Jesus broke the bread first and then passed the cup second. In the Didache, an early church manual from the first century, when it gives instructions on how to do the Lord's Supper, it actually instructed churches to do the cup first and then to pass the bread second. What all this means is there is no rule, there is no law that says one has to come before the other. Paul sees the blood and the body, the bread and the wine as interchangeable. Either can be taken first. And so just following the practice of the Last Supper, we tend to do the bread first. I hope you guys aren't completely bored by all this. I I find it fascinating. I find it interesting. I want us to know why we do what we do. So um, I hope this is interesting to you. Um, The name that appears to have been very common in the early church Uh, the name that most Christians would have called the Lord's Supper in the first few centuries was the term love feast. Um, In the early church writings, that term is used often for the Lord's Supper, the love feast. It's only mentioned once in the Bible, and that's Jude 12. Uh, This is certainly a suitable name because certainly the Lord's Supper is meant to be a fellowship meal. 
uh, a feast of sorts, and it is to be pervaded by our love for one another as we celebrate his awesome love for us. So it is a time of love. As we take the Lord's Supper, there should be love in your heart for Christ and for one another as we think about Christ's love for us. It's a love feast. And then finally, the name I use most often is the Lord's Supper. And this is the name that Paul uses for the meal in 1 Corinthians 11. Um, It is the Lord's Supper because he has established this practice for us. We eat the supper at his house. Christ has provided the meaning of the supper. The supper centers on him. It remembers him. It proclaims him. Paul even says that the Lord's Supper looks forward to the day he will return. And so certainly the Lord's Supper is an appropriate name for us to use. Now, as I came to this point in writing the sermon, I realized I simply don't have time to deal with my fifth question because the fifth question is a doozy. It opens up um, a can of issues that matter deeply to families and matters deeply to, to all of us. It touches all of our lives. It's the question of, Who may participate in the Lord's Supper? And you may think, well, that sounds easy. Christians should participate in the Lord's Supper. But what about believing children who've not yet been baptized? What about Christians who are under church discipline? What about the early church practice of closing off the entire fellowship meal to only baptize believers? What role should churches take in making sure that only Christians take the Lord's Supper? How, how far do we go in enforcing that? Do, do the deacons walk around and if an unbeliever tries to take the bread, they slap their hand away? Say, no, right? not for you? Well, what do we do with that? And so there's a lot of questions there for us to think about. And it's an important question. And so that will be, uh, as we come to the end of our study, that will be what we'll look at next time. So how should we approach the Lord's table together as a church, we should approach the table as sinners who know that apart from the Lord Jesus, we have no hope. We should remember the hell that we deserve. And we should remember that God is so good and so holy. And we have trampled his commands. And we are so stinking selfish and prideful and wicked. And we should come to the Lord's table remembering how Christ willingly left heaven and took on human flesh and lived a life of suffering for us. Bring to your mind the gospel of how Jesus died for sinners. And as you take the bread and as you take the cup, embrace Christ by faith and be able to say, He died for me. And let your heart overflow in love to Jesus and sense His love. Let's pray. Let's pray. So, Father, we ask now as we come to the Lord's Supper, we ask that you would help us to believe the gospel. And we ask that our hearts would be overwhelmed by the depth and the breadth of Christ's love for us. Father, we ask that this would not be simply some ritual or tradition but that we would see that Christ commanded this as a way of reminding us regularly of how far his love goes 
and what he's willing to do for our souls. Help us to love Christ more because of this ordinance. Bless us now as we take the Lord's Supper. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.